Hi, everyone. You are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am one of the principal investigators of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In today's episode, titled Sophocles and Tragic Loves, I speak with Professor Donanjay Jagannathan about the Greek tragic drama, The Women of Trachis, and what it shows us about how love might fare in a human world riven by chance, misfortune, and suffering. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Very pleased to have Don and Jay Jagannathan on the podcast with me today. Don and Jay is currently Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Columbia University. Prior to Columbia, he was teaching at Dartmouth College. He received his PhD in Philosophy and Classics at the University of Chicago, his BA at UT Austin, and he also did some graduate work at Oxford and Cambridge. Don and Jay, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you. Today, we are going to be talking a little bit about Greek tragedy, and in particular, you have chosen a play by Sophocles called Women of Trachis. Before we get into Sophocles' play, I just wanted to start with some general questions about tragedy. So I was wondering if you could say what you think tragedy is, just as a a form of art, and why you find it personally compelling, and why you think we should be reading or seeing a Greek tragedy today. A tragedy is a, a serious sort of drama that exposes us to dark corners of ourselves and the world we inhabit. And its characters are vulnerable. They face moments of crisis or turmoil, and more often than not, they suffer. Tragedy, as I understand it, is about the constant presence and possibility of loss, loss of good things in our lives. But nevertheless, it's something that's beautiful when it's done well. The appeal of tragedy, its value, I think depends on our ability to see its characters as struggling nobly in the face of such loss and vulnerability. Now, that can be a matter of grappling with the consequences of one's own actions. You can think of, uh, of course, Oedipus the tyrant uh, of Sophocles, or perhaps of the kind of double bind that one finds oneself in. That's a common feature, the tragic dilemma. Or even uh, with the uncontrollable force of emotions. All of these appear in, in different kinds of tragedies and In a way, there's not, I think, one common definition of tragedy. And Aristotle uh, tried to give one in his poetics. And uh, I think he encouraged people in his aftermath to take up this practice of giving definitions. I think that's not easy to do. It's much easier to point to examples of of tragedies or, or perhaps at least to great ones. The tragedies of Sophocles and Shakespeare tend to be on most people's lists, despite their many differences with each other. What was Aristotle's definition of tragedy? It's a complicated six-part definition, and he includes some elements that that we might want to accept. For instance, that uh, it's an imitation or representation of action. I think that's the most important feature, and it's one that we should hold on to. 
But then he also says that the tragedy involves music, and that we might think is maybe more closely connected to his own cultural context. We might think Greek tragedies always involve music, but that um, tragedy itself doesn't necessarily need to. There's been disagreement about that, uh, whether you can just have a totally spoken and plain spoken uh, drama and have it still be a tragedy. And perhaps most contentiously, he thought that tragedies evoked certain characteristic emotions, pity and fear. And he put that in the definition. That's also something that people have disagreed about. So if tragedy is is so dark, what's the importance of going there? Why should we put in the effort to engage with a form of art that, you know, maybe isn't necessarily uplifting, maybe isn't necessarily going to make us feel good? What's what's the value in engaging it? Especially Greek tragedy, which is remote in many ways and and so sometimes difficult to just pick up and understand. In a way, I would point first just to the fact that you know, people still go to, to plays or dramas that, that have these dark themes. Not every serious drama is going to count as a tragedy. And I think one interesting feature of the Greek tragedies is that there's something lofty about them. There's something sublime. There's a way of looking at ourselves in tragedy that is at least partly elevating. So I think it would be difficult to call something a tragedy if it just depicted people suffering and we didn't see the nobility of struggle or of rising above one's circumstances. Again, going back to Aristotle, Aristotle thought that tragedies had to depict people who are in some sense better than us. I don't think that's necessarily right, but it does have to depict more than ordinary kinds of loss and suffering in the way, the way that we tend to use the word tragic when someone dies in an untimely way or there's some kind of unavoidable disaster. I think that emphasizes the, the suffering aspect of tragedy. And it, I think it's a pretty diluted sense of the word. It's a lot like the word horrible, you know, which we sort of use when, when things are bad. There's, there's actually, you know, there's some link to the etymology there, tragedy and tragic, horrible, and, you know, this kind of your hair raising up sense of, of fear and terror. But I think you know, we're often on the hunt for hyperbolic ways to express our dismay. So a lot of the times that we just use the word tragic, we're not really talking about anything like the literary genre of tragedy. One of the things that you explore in an essay that I was reading to prepare for this podcast, which is called On Making Sense of Oneself, Reflections on Julian Barnes' The Sense of an Ending. This was an essay in, was it philosophy and literature? Yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful essay. So... I was reading, as you know, some of your reflections on the tragic and tragedy. And one of the things that you try to contrast is tragedy and farce. So not all suffering is perhaps tragic in the sense that you want to be talking about. So what's the difference between suffering that is tragic and suffering that is farcical or suffering that is just pointless? Farce, of course, is a, a subgenre of comedy, and there are lots of interesting relationships between tragedy and comedy. But one of them is that tragedy, the dramatic genre, when it's handled badly, can easily turn into farce if the situations it depicts are especially contrived or absurd-seeming, if they don't seem like possibilities for us or people like us, perhaps, or if the characters have bizarre reactions to the situations, or the suffering kind of just piles on with no sense of an ability to respond to it. I think dramatic irony is essential to tragedy. The audience in tragedy often knows or at least can suspect more than 
what the central characters have worked out. But irony, of course, also drives a lot of comedy. Uh, we need a, a kind of distance from the action to respond sympathetically to characters, but that very same distance can also encourage us or at least allow us to laugh at them. So if we can't take the events of a tragedy seriously enough, they can start to seem farcical. And of course, this has been exploited in um, the modern sort of hybrid genre of tragic comedy. Can you give an example of that genre? The, the famous one, Waiting for Godot. Oh, okay, sure. So another theme that you discuss in this essay is the relationship between tragedy and thoughts about happiness. And I was interested in how you described happiness in this essay. So you talk about happiness as becoming more than we presently are, which implies that happiness is a goal that we haven't quite reached yet. And so I wondered if you could say a little bit about how to think about tragedy in relation to happiness, thinking of it precisely as a goal and not just as some super pleasant subjective state I happen to be in right now. I'm thinking about happiness in the way that the Greek philosophers thought about it in terms of a kind of success in a life as a whole. It seems first blush that tragedy is just going to depict people becoming unhappy, people's lives being unsuccessful in various ways. Even if there's, as it were, a happy ending, we might still think, well, look, this is a kind of temporary state. And so we still can't evaluate the whole life as successful if it if it's so vulnerable to chance, especially. So how can happiness even be a goal for us? And I think, uh, especially in Greek literature, there's a way of thinking about, about happiness or, or success in life, where it's something that you can't fully control. It's not something you can't fully predict, but it's still a human possibility. And I think at the very limits, when that, that thought stops making sense, and it just looks like we're all miserable, or at least potentially miserable, or we're kidding ourselves if we think we can ever achieve a kind of permanent success, then tragedy also starts to lose its grip on us. I think paradoxically, even though tragedy depicts people's lives not going well, there has to be a sense in the background that they could go better, or that at least we have the capacity to, even if that capacity isn't always actualized, even if it doesn't always come to fruition that we succeed in life. Yeah, so that picks up on another theme in Greek tragedy, especially, and maybe Greek literature and poetry more broadly, is the extent to which the human person really has control over his or her life. And this is something that Bernard Williams explores. So Bernard Williams is 20th century philosopher, Anglo American analytic philosopher. And he has this book, The Sense of the Past, Essays in the History of Philosophy. And part one of that book is, is on the Greeks, the legacy of Greek philosophy, but then also, you know, literature and poetry. And chapter two of that book is on the women of Trachis, which is the Sophoclean tragedy that you chose to discuss in this podcast, which we are going to get to very soon. But before we get to what happens in that play, I wanted to pick up on a theme that Williams explores, and that is this question of the extent to which we really have control 
over our lives. So he talks about how in modern philosophy, generally, kind of post-Enlightenment philosophy in particular, and he especially has in mind the two most influential strands in analytic moral philosophy, which would be Kantianism on the one hand and utilitarianism on the on the other hand. And as different as these two moral theories are, what they have in common, Williams points out, is this idea of the moral agent as basically in control. And so long as the moral agent acts according to the right principles in the situation, then that's kind of all that matters. I think one of the things that interests Williams about Greek literature and poetry and and tragedy in particular is that it puts a lot of pressure against this idea of us human beings as autonomous choice makers who kind of create our lives and our world to a significant extent. And I just wondered if you could say something about what you think about that. In, in a way, I think this, this goes back to something I said earlier about the difference between tragedy and the tragic. I think Williams is, is exactly right that it's convenient to think that when things go well or badly, um, that's up to us in, in small part or in large part, or at least there's some fragment of the world that is totally up to us, say the moral part of the world. And maybe the chance controls how fortunate you are, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is following the moral law or complying with the principle of utility. And one of the things that we see in Greek tragedy is that a lot of the time we see pretty good people doing bad things and under pressure from the circumstances, of course, and that can induce a kind of anxiety. But I think it's easy to veer a little bit too far in the direction of saying, well, tragedy shows us that there are these limitations in in human agency. I think that's absolutely right and interesting. But if we just think tragedy depicts the breakdown of human agency, then we're thinking about tragedy just as in the way that we use the word tragic nowadays, just a matter of bad things sometimes happen, they're unavoidable, and there's suffering involved. Again, one of the things that I think Aristotle really got right about tragedy is that it's a representation of action. Even if that action or agency or activity is very circumscribed, so you know, in some sense, Aristotle, like many people, was a great fan of the Oedipus, the tyrant of Sophocles, and people have observed very little actually happens in that play. It's really a play about finding out about what's already happened. But I actually think making sense of of what we've done is a way of our agency being expressed. And so even though there isn't action in the sense of an action movie in that play, still we learn something and we see someone being an agent in an active way. And so a tragedy can't just be about uh, pushing back on this feeling or this hope that we have that we're in control of our lives. It's got to be something in the middle that we're not fully in control. And that's something that we can learn from this kind of literature. And I think Williams is right to argue that. Right. I mean, so I I like the Greeks. I like the medievals too, maybe a little bit more, but I like the Greeks. And one of the things that I really like about the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle in particular is the way that they pay attention to the interactions between what we might call agency and passivity, so action and passion, and especially in the human person. So in both of those philosophers, you get a picture of the human person where what's active in you depends on what you've received to a certain extent or how you're affected by things. But how you're affected can be transformed or transfigured over time 
by how you act. I mean, we can separate them in terms of thought, but sort of the passive and reactive or effective elements of human life, but we can't ever really separate them in reality because they interpenetrate one another. Maybe in tragedy, they do that in an especially sublime way. Just to um, say one more thing about Williams that I find interesting and worth mentioning is that he puts tragedy under this broader umbrella of what he calls stark fictions. And he seems to think that the importance of stark fictions for people generally, but for moral philosophers in particular, is to offer a necessary supplement and maybe correction to what he calls the tireless aim of moral philosophy to make the world safe for well-disposed people. I love that line. I know, right? It's so Williams. I love it too. I wondered if you could say what you think he means by that. I think his thought is that a lot of the kind of fiction that we tend to consume, which is what Williams calls dense fiction, represented especially by you know, the 19th century realistic novel. We come to be acquainted through fiction with individuals and their experiences. Our attention is, is sort of on the particular and what the possibilities are for this, this person in this context. And we can get sort of wrapped up in the texture of what's going on. And there's a sense in which the, you know, the stark fiction is much more metaphysical. It represents these kinds of, here's what the world is like, and we don't need to know a whole lot about the characters. That's why you know, Greek tragedy is full of these um, mythic archetypal figures, and why even, even a lot of later tragedies, there isn't the same kind of attention to bringing us into the mind of the characters in, in the same way that dense, dense fictions do. And what that allows us to appreciate in the, in the stark fictions is the kind of, we, we can't take refuge in, in this kind of affinity with, with individual characters. We kind of have to reckon with the human condition as such. And so there's a kind of universalism, perhaps, to stark fiction. And in particular, this, these thoughts that he has about the limitations of what we can control. And Williams, in particular, is interested in necessity and chance and how those figure in, in Greek tragedy in particular. And Williams thinks we don't like to face the fact that chance plays an enormous role in our possibilities and uh, whether we succeed or not. And that's something that the stark fiction and in particular Greek tragedy can show us. And that's unpleasant and uncomfortable. Right, I agree. I agree completely with that. And I think in particular in moral philosophy, we have a problem acknowledging that in part because of the way we think about morality, but in part because I think a lot of moral philosophy rests on what we might call certain ideologies of the human person, which are really just, they're a bit self-deceived in various ways. One thing that literature does is perhaps, among many other things, is perhaps make us a little less self-deceived than we otherwise might have been. But I think now we should actually just get into Women of Trachy's can I say one, one more thing about the, the Williams that I ought to have said, which is that one of the problems with dense fictions is that they have a tendency to just reproduce in the reader their pre-existing ideology. So you can, you can pick up you know, one of these novels and you, you'll find your own way of making sense of it based on what you already right. think. And th that's the thing that, that stark fiction is supposed to short circuit. Right. No, and when it works, it really, it, it really works. It's, it's, it's very unsettling. Okay, maybe it would be good just to summarize briefly what happens in Women of Trachies. Maybe tell us something about the main characters. And also, can you tell us which translation and version of the text you're referring to? 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm working from the Women of Trachis in a volume published by Hackett, Sophocles for Tragedies. And the Women of Trachis in that volume is translated by my teacher, Paul Woodruff. So Women of Trachis, it's, it's probably the, the least well-known of the, the seven complete extant plays of Sophocles, and probably also the least well-loved, which is one reason I wanted to talk about it. it. It's a play that picks up on the myth of Heracles, and it's talking about the end of his life in particular after he's completed the 12 labors. So the play focuses in its first half on his wife, Deanira, who's been stranded in this foreign country, taking care of their children and waiting for him to come back to finish his work of sort of civilizing the wilderness of Greece, of you know, getting rid of these monsters like the Lernaean Hydra and the Nemean Lion. The brilliant thing about the play is that Deanira and Heracles don't meet. And in fact, in the, the Greek custom of having just three actors play all the roles, the same actor would have played both of them. They never meet on stage, and so it's a play that divides into these two halves. And what happens is that Deanira gets news that Heracles is on his way home, and she's excited because she hasn't seen him, except occasionally at night when he comes to produce more children. But then the, the news starts to be troubling. It seems like he's been involved in some kind of war. He sends the spoils of war ahead of him, and among those spoils is a young woman. And Deanira eventually discovers that this, this woman is to be Heracles' new wife. And one of the remarkable things about the play is that her reaction, of course, she's unsettled and jealous, but she's very kind to the woman who is actually unable to speak, presumably from the trauma of her family being killed and her city being destroyed by Heracles. Well, yeah, she, she pities her. That's um, right. It's one thing to say. She pities her, but she also doesn't blame her because she's very clear that she doesn't think that she's responsible for what's happened to her. She also identifies with her because she knows what it, what it was like to be a young woman. And in fact, it turns out, we learn from the story that Heracles sort of won Deonera by, by killing this river god, Achelous, or at least driving him away. And so Deonera was sort of handed over to Heracles by, by her father. We get a powerful sense of, of a kind of vulnerability of women in a world of male violence, from this first half of the play, which is maybe not what we expect from a play that's about Heracles, the great conquering hero. But then the actual events of the play quickly unfold. Deonera decides to try to win back Heracles' love by using a kind of love potion. It turns out the love potion is poison. And when Heracles puts on a cloak that's been smeared with it, he starts to suffer this extraordinary pain. He's sort of consumed by flames and burning. And then by the time he's brought back to Trachis, he's sort of totally incapacitated. And when he's conscious, he's just sort of raging. What's remarkable about this part of the play is that Heracles and Deonera's son, Hillis, who's the only character that appears in, in both halves of the play, he sort of tries to to comfort his father, to, to console him. He explains to Heracles that Deonera wasn't really responsible for this. And Heracles, when he is able to sort of control his anger, agrees. He, he blames the, the centaur who tricked Deonera by telling her that this poison was in fact a love potion that she could use if Heracles ever strayed from her. And the last part of the play is, is concerned with just Heracles tries to control his his agony and to sort of put things in the in the right order 
I should say by this point, Danara has, uh, the reason that she's not on stage at this point is that once she finds out what she's done, she kills herself. And that also gets reported to us indirectly. And so Hillis is aware that he's about to be orphaned. Right. And what, uh, what Heracles does is he, he sort of decides, you know, that he wants to be carried up to the mountain and put on a funeral pyre. And in the myth, in the, in the story that the original audience of Sophocles would have been familiar with, the audience would have all known that Heracles actually gets taken up into heaven by the gods before he dies because of his great bravery. But Sophocles doesn't depict that. Instead, what we, what we see is Heracles ordering Hillis to marry the young woman, Iole, that he's captured and sort of preserve the continuity of their family. And then Heracles is carried off stage. And at the end, we get this r- remarkable speech by Hillis about how the people who are present for these events should have pity for him and for, especially for Heracles because the gods don't have any pity themselves. And in fact, what they've done in allowing these events or perhaps bringing them about is shameful, which is an extraordinary sentiment to find in a tragedy like this. The ending, I definitely want to talk a lot about Hillis's last speech at the end. Right away, we have Dayanara talking, and the first thing that she's talking about is how she's an object simultaneously of male erotic desire and violence. They're, I think, pretty plainly connected in this play. So she talks about herself, but in particular, she's talking about how she feels trapped in the specific sense of being stalked by men and their erotic desire for her. And this is when we learn how she ends up being Heracles' wife because of two male figures. I mean, one of them is sort of like a river god or something. That's right. In, in, in transformed form, yes. Right. So so there's like a, a river god after her. And then Heracles comes in and wins her, as it were. But but at any rate, she's she's as it were captured. And I and I think this explains well, she does have sympathy for Ile. I mean, you might expect her to just see her as a threat. I mean, she does see her as a threat, but she has a lot of sympathy and compassion and understanding for her precisely because I think she has been in a very similar situation. And she understands that Ile is not the agent of her own life to a significant degree, that she is, as it were, at the whims of men. And one of the things that she says that's so interesting to me, so this is actually on page 82, Dayanara is talking to this messenger who's relaying, like, what's up with Hercules? And she's saying some general things about love and how love rules by his own whim. There she seems to be talking about the god of love. He rules over gods. He rules over me. Why not over women who are like me? And so she also says, I don't blame my husband for catching this disease. And the same for her. What could she be responsible for? It's not her fault. And then she says, she expresses a kind of pity for her. She says her beauty has just destroyed her life. It has ruined her fatherland and enslaved her people. She never wanted that. So it's like she has this acknowledgement that one, 
love itself is kind of unbidden, that it's something that comes from the outside, as it were, and and takes hold of you to a certain extent. But also that when it comes to women who are objects of that kind of erotic male desire, they're not necessarily in control of that to a great extent. No, that's right. And I think in a way, I mean, one of the difficult things about the play is that um, we do get these generalizations about men, but we're talking about one specific and very extraordinary man in the form of Heracles. It might just be the, the biases of modern readers, but you know, he doesn't really come off well in the first half of the play. He's sort of like he's treated these women as monstrously as, yet yeah, it's, it's good when he's fighting off these, you know, these beasts out in the wilds, but he's sort of a wild man um, in all aspects of his well, life. Well, you know, I... I think he doesn't come off well because in the beginning, we mostly hear from a woman's perspective. That's right. And then it shifts later in the play to a more male perspective, the son and the father. But in the beginning, it's it's basically day and era. That's right. And um, you know, there is this, this interesting tension that's introduced that we find elsewhere in, in Greek literature and in discussions of Eros, that Eros is obviously something that drives us to act. And it's something that we, we feel. And yet, when we're in the spell of it, it feels like something is controlling us. And in particular, the objects of our love can seem like the beloved is, is making me do this or that, but that's not true. I think, in a way, that's why Iole is so important to this play, because she shows that Eros, is, of course, is, with this passionate erotic love is a, is a human phenomenon. Um, but we see immediately what its dark side is and what it can drive people to do that's unattractive and, and damaging. And yet, of course, the plot of the play is driven by the fact that Deonera herself is very much subject to Eros for her husband Heracles wants to win him back and also feels this, this kind of erotic passion for him. But that's figured differently in the, you know, insofar as she's a woman, that's going to be expressed in this different way. It's going to be expressed through persuasion. And so she tries to, to persuade him with this gift. And of course, there's also the, this magical aspect of it, this kind of love charm. But she's really hoping that he just he comes to his senses and comes back to her rather than being able to, you know, win him back over in some sense physically. And the irony, of course, is that the method that she chooses and ends up being the one thing maybe that would kill right. him, this gift that he, he doesn't suspect at all. That's right. I think she does love him. His love is described as a kind of madness, a kind of disease, and it's always his love for Iole. I can't actually remember any passages where they really dwell on Heracles' love, which he obviously once had for Deonera. But at any rate, it's when she talks about her love for him, it is different. It's not this kind of madness. It's it's a very empathetic and understanding kind of love. It's not so much that she's making excuses for him, but it's very clear that despite the fact that he's less interested in her, she wants to be with him. I don't think we're ever given any reason why, but it's it's something that she is able to think clearly about and and she comes up with this plan to get him back, which does turn out to be a complete disaster, right? So she remembers that there was this centaur that, I mean, we don't need to get into the complicated story, but as he was dying, gave her this, um, I think it was actually his his blood. His blood, and he's been, the centaur himself has been killed with the poison-tipped arrows of Heracles. That's right. 
So that, in some sense, should have been the tip-off that his blood, too, is poisoned. Right. But she she takes what he says to her as he's dying, as he himself is dying at face value, which is that, look, if and when Heracles loses interest in you, you can use this blood. He has, like, some precise instructions for her. And she keeps it. And she keeps those instructions. And now she finds herself in exactly the position that the centaur had foreseen that that she would need to use it. And of course, it turns out the centaur is just doesn't actually care about her <laughs> and really just wants to take his revenge. And of course, it's, it's an especially terrible kind of revenge because he's dead. And so the, no one benefits yeah. from, from it. In some sense. Yeah. So he tricks her, basically. He he lies to her. So in some sense, she doesn't know what she's doing. I don't know what you think, but it seems to me right to say that she couldn't have known. I mean, maybe you think, oh, like, isn't it obvious that... And she herself puts two and two together. She's like, oh, well, obviously he was pissed off and I didn't see that. I don't know if this was negligence on her part. Or was it? No, I don't think so. I, th- I, think, well, I think one of the funny things is in, in a world where there are things like poison-tipped arrows and hydra's blood, you know, the kind of ordinary causal laws break down a little right, bit. Right. And so you can be forgiven. For, <laughs> you can be forgiven for getting something magical wrong because it just doesn't make sense anyway. It's important that we see her as sort of not, let's say not responsible, but the source of the outcome. And she certainly feels responsible herself, and that's why she kills herself because she, she can't bear what's happened. And that would seem like a horrible overreaction if he, she had nothing to do with it. But I think especially when Heracles is told, here's, well, here's what happened. And he, you know, he's so angry that when, when the cloak is initially put on him and starts to affect him, he just kills one of his attendants randomly. We're supposed to think of him as this totally uncontrolled brute. Even he doesn't blame her, ultimately, and blames the centaur, who is really responsible for, for the events. Right. So we have, so on the one hand, we have Heracles is driven by his erotic desire for Eole, she's driven to make a terrible choice, it turns out, by her erotic desire for Heracles. And now we have the son, Hillis, who immediately takes his father's side in this. So it's actually Hillis, I, I think it's Hillis that comes back and tells Dianera that she's killed Heracles. Yeah. Yeah. And he's very angry. Well, I mean, to put it mildly, he's very angry at his mother. So his actions are motivated by a kind of love of and and duty towards the father. Maybe we could talk a little bit about Hillis and what role he's playing in all of this. He's an interesting character. At the beginning, we kind of see him as partly confident, partly diffident figure. And he has to be instructed to go and join his father, although it turns out he kind of knows roughly where his father has been recently. He's heard these rumors and he has to be kind of set in motion um, to go out and join him. But once he does go out, you know, we kind of see him grow into himself a little bit. And it's right that I think there's something striking because his father has been almost totally absent in his life, that he has this very powerful attachment to Heracles. And But then we also see that the kind of other side of that, which is that Heracles and, and Hillis have all these misunderstandings in the, in the long final scene when Heracles is dying. And at the end, Hillis really refuses at first what his father orders him to do, which is to marry Eole. And that, that's an interesting moment. In a way, we kind of see maybe a difference between the father and the son that Hillis knows that this woman is, is beautiful and she's available and 
and yet he has no interest in her because she she's sort of wrapped up in the death of both of his parents, and that's too painful for him. Why does Heracles want him to marry her? I think this is an interesting and underexplored aspect of this play. There's, you know, obviously Eros is very important, but we see already with what Deanira says about it that there's a link between the erotic passion and then this desire for a more stable marriage relationship. Deanira says at one point, oh, Heracles has had many wives. And I think there's a, it's interesting there because in some sense she is his wife and maybe it's true that he's had many women, but you know, it's not clear exactly what is the difference between a wife and a woman is one of the things that comes, comes up for, for discussion in this first half of the play. And Heracles' response to all of this breakdown and instability is to propose that there be this marriage, presumably so that the, the family is kind of restored in some way to order and to, to normality. But of course, it's, it's a marriage that he recommends without any concern for whether his son actually feels any arrows. And so I think there are all these, there's these funny, this funny interplay between these, these concepts. And of course, arrows needn't lead to marriage. But if it does, there's an interesting question about what that dynamic is like and whether marriage in a way or institutions generally are a way of kind of channeling arrows in the, in the right direction. The main action at the end is that Heracles is going to be burned, I guess, like on a, on a funeral pyre. I mean, he's going to put himself out of his own misery. So he's, you know, he's wearing this robe and it's giving him all this pain and agony and it's like a slow death and he's going to speed it up by setting himself on fire. And he makes Hillis help him in that to a certain extent. Yes. And then we have this final speech by Hillis at the end. And in that speech... He says, and, and he's speaking of the gods, and he, he's speaking about sort of the events in general, which he calls a great ruthlessness. Well, actually, he says, oh, I'll just read it. Lift him up, my friends, and grant me for doing this great compassion, which would be helping his father set himself on fire. And also see the great ruthlessness of the gods in these actions. They so children, we honor them as our fathers, and yet they watch so much suffering. What is to come is not for anyone to see, but what stands now is pitiful for us and shameful for them, but most harsh for him of all men, the one who bears this rage. Do not leave this home, young woman. You have seen majesty and death and novelty, much suffering and suffering in new forms, and nothing in this is not Zeus. So all this suffering, this new and novel suffering, nothing in this is not Zeus. What do you make of that? final passage. I mean, it, it's a remarkable sentiment, the sort of bitter resentment toward the gods. And remember that Zeus is not just some abstraction. He is Hylas's grandfather, he's Heracles' father. And so there's this family relationship, and they're letting this family down by, by not intervening. And of course, we might think this is where the play ends. And the audience would think, oh, but of course, Zeus is going to come in and, and rescue Heracles from the funeral pyre and make it all good in the end. But we don't actually see that. We just get the, the play really rests on this, on this thought that the gods don't have pity for human suffering. And so we need to have pity and compassion for each other. And what's striking is that I think, you know, one response to seeing all this novelty and suffering is to say, well, you know, why bother believing in gods who set any of this in motion? I mean, if you didn't have the sort of family relationship to them, maybe you wouldn't want to believe that this is a, a world where there are powerful beings who don't care anything for us. That's why it's so interesting that Hillis ends on the thought that nothing in this is not Zeus. And I think there's a way that it would depend on how the actor delivered that line. 
But there's a way of saying that where it's an acknowledgement and also at the same time a sort of prayer. And you can have a kind of angry reverence where you don't fully understand why things are going the way they have and yet acknowledge that the gods are behind it. At least as far as we can tell, you know, Sophocles had this great reputation in his own lifetime for piety and that his plays were regarded highly in part because of their religious seriousness. Remember, these tragedies are being performed at a religious festival in Athens in the 5th century. So there's no suggestion that this play, as it were, got him in trouble or that you know, these final lines were, were received as a kind of indictment of the gods. I think what we're supposed to see is, a, is an angry young man who is, has lost both of his parents to this horrible situation, and he's just trying to make sense of it. And this is one sort of thing one might say in trying to make sense of it, that, that we need to sort of rely on, on each other because the gods aren't helping. I guess I want to ask if maybe there's a contrast here between the Greek tragic perspective on the one hand and what we might call a stoicized Christian perspective on the other. And in particular, I have in mind Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. It's a very famous text that explores the connections between virtue and happiness. And it famously asserts that that connection is basically watertight. So Boethius is an interesting figure. He's an important statesman. He's a, a scholar living the intellectual life. But in his role as a statesman, he does the just thing. And this gets him imprisoned and he's up for being executed. So he's in his prison cell and he's feeling sorry for himself because he's been stripped of all his worldly goods. And Lady Philosophy comes to him and tells him to buck up. Everything's fine. Why is everything fine? Well, because it turns out that virtue does secure your happiness because all that matters is your beautiful soul. And all that matters is your beautiful soul because your happiness isn't in this life. It's not in this vulnerable life where justice might land you in prison and on the executioner's block. It's in the next life because real happiness is eternal life with God. So this is supposed to be the consolation that Lady Philosophy offers Boethius. Now, I guess I'm thinking this seems like a denial that human life can be genuinely tragic. I mean, Lady Philosophy seems to be arguing to Boethius that he's suffering no real loss. Like if he just sort of looks at things sub specie eternitatis, he'll see that he's suffering no real loss. And so my question is, you know, is there really a tragic Christian perspective or does the idea that happiness is in another life basically undercut it? What was really interesting to me in what you said was that you separated these two different aspects of Boethius's view, this Stoic or Socratic response to the problem of vulnerability, and then the Christian hope for happiness in another life. And I think, ultimately, the difference between that perspective and the tragic perspective, the Greek tragic perspective, is going to depend much more on the first, on the, the point about, let's say, the incomparability between the kinds of things we want, generally, and the goodness of our character which is really the most important thing to whether our lives are successful, happiness in that sense. There, there are Stoic tragedies. We have these tragedies by Seneca, like his Medea, where you know, the lesson, they're very didactic, and the lesson we're supposed to learn is you shouldn't have really out-of-control emotions. You should you know, focus on being very calm and rational and having a good character, and, that, and that, that's the path to success, and look at how awful it is if you don't do that. And they don't really work as dramas. But there are absolutely Christian tragedies. One of my favorite tragedies is, I think, best known as an opera. It's Leos Janacek, his opera Yenufa, 
which is from the early part of the 20th century, I believe. And, you know, it's a play about a, an ordinary person, a, a, a woman in a, in a poor Czech village. And it's a, it's a deeply Christian story. And in some sense, there's a kind of redemptive ending to all the suffering. But we very much get the sense that the suffering is real and matters and that people's lives are not going well insofar as they're deprived of these goods, even if there's something that ultimately makes up for it in another life. I think part of how that works is that this thing that makes up for the loss that we experience now, it has to seem relatively remote. And I think it has to seem at least in part beyond our current human understanding in this life. And that allows us to simultaneously hold on to the thought that the suffering here and now is real and it matters. And of course, you know, the genre of Christian tragedy in some sense got off the ground with these medieval passion plays about the passion of Christ and, and the affinity that medieval and Renaissance authors saw between the suffering of Christ and the suffering of characters in tragic drama. And so I think we, we have to make sense of this kind of sort of dual perspective about you know, one thought about this life that's at least relatively consistent with the Greek tragic perspective, and then maybe a kind of hope that keeps us from just a kind of total nihilistic despair about what the next life might be. And so it seems like, I think, the, 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 it's the Stoic part of Boethius that's really driving him away from the, the more Greek perspective. So I think we should leave it there. Obviously, there's so much more to discuss, but thank you so much. This is great. Thanks for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.